Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Hello, hello, everyone, to yet another episode of Teams at Work. And we are super excited to have Raz as our guest today. Raz is the Senior Director of Engineering at Delivery Hero. And Raz has had our co-founder, Charles, on his podcast. And since then, it was my secret plan to get Raz on our podcast. And it's finally happening. So I'm really hyped. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it's been a very long time since I actually recorded an episode. So I am more excited and feeling a bit uh, nervous by recording an episode for the first time in years. So super happy to join and also super happy to return a favor to Charles because it's still in one of my top three episodes we ever recorded was the culture one. So I'm happy to be here. Super, super cool. And diving right in. So Senior Director of Engineering, what does that actually entail? What does it kind of look like day to day for you? What is that role? It's a nightmare. Uh, let me kind of walk you through. So I'm very extremely anal about structures. So I'm going to read basically my statistics from my Google Calendar for this week to basically try to share what it really means. So I did zero hours of interviews this week. This is also a matter of this current time we're in, I guess. About 10 hours was focused on. So tasks that I actually have to deliver myself. So some productivity thing that I could produce on my day to day. One hour was actually working on stuff that is not just my tribe, but actually some project management between tribes. So project management that is a bit larger. Architecture and tech was two hours of my week. So basically being in meetings that we're talking about either technical KPIs, cost savings, or just validating some technical decisions with our senior staff and, uh, and teams. Zero hours of my education, which is sadly a constant that I will see. I know it's, it's amazing. Eight and a half hours of one-on-ones. And let's call this delivery hero citizenship is about two and a half hours. And also I had unstructured meetings. So these are more ad hocs, not recurring, that I don't mark. That are usually more of um, things that I need to do, uh, less minute uh, shenanigans that usually happen in management. So let's call this chaos of management type of stuff. And the rest is very minimum amount of white blanks on my calendar that I can also fit in. I don't know normal stuff, I guess, that, uh, that's there. So honestly, what this role entails is everything besides being productive. It's basically trying to make everyone else productive, refining for everyone. So when a decision needs to be made, you've already gotten already almost to the, to the starting line. So people can actually take it to the finish line. Super cool. And if you kind of try to summarize it in like one or two lines, what do you think is the mission of like a director of engineering in comparison to other engineering leadership roles? 
Oof. Um, it's hard to say. Like, I don't know how it is to be a leader in any other thing besides in engineering. I mean, my dad is a chef, so maybe I've seen how chefs are crazy and scream at everyone. So that's a bad comparison point. But I think the one thing that makes it unique is where... In engineering, at least, it's quite clear that the minute you're a manager, you have a negative return investment on the craft that brought you to the role. Where I think maybe in other positions like chefs and so on, like you actually do become better at your hard skills, but you just also have to now have management, time management, team management. Where in engineering, there is a clear decline in my engineering skills in the last 10 years. That's quite obvious. Where, and then a lot of trust needs to be built and also another, a lot of understanding that it is a completely new role. And also... Thinking about chefs, for example, I think cooks, for example, they tend to less be able to choose their manager. You know the saying, like people don't quit their job, they quit their manager. That's true for us. Like as we live in a very privileged world in engineering where we can actually just say, hey, we can, uh, you know, I, I can quit my manager, not my job, right? Because in many other positions, like, I don't know, as my example with chefs, a cook doesn't necessarily have that privilege, right? We are very privileged. I think of my grandpa working in a, in a factory, creating faucets. He couldn't quit his manager. So we also, as engineering leaders, live in a world where we need to inspire and have our employees have their voice shared and feel that they still want to come to work because they can find a new job potentially tomorrow anyway, because that's one big thing that we do have. And that also is, in my opinion, a really good shift of power because managers, I always define my role as a garbage collector. My role is to make sure to collect all the garbage, to let everyone focus on what they can do and make sure that, as I said, like to bring it to the starting line so they can deliver it to the finish line. And uh, yeah, that's, I guess, different than other positions. But again, I'm clear, never had a different job besides, you know, when I was a swimmer instructor as a student or something. So if we kind of take it a little bit further in that direction, what do you think makes an engineering leader great? And maybe kind of think also about managers you've had that stood out to you that you kind of felt like, oh, this is a good person to admire and kind of want to be when I grow up, but also maybe from your own experience and feedback that you have gotten as a manager, what are the behaviors that make great engineering leaders? I always gravitate to my first manager. Sadly enough, I think my first manager is still my best manager. It's been a good 18 years and I still go to the same person. And I think he said something as when I was a student and I asked, I mean, like, what's the thing with this management part? Like, why, why, what is it? What are you doing? And he said, like, every team, every manager they have in engineering, at least they have three P's and a T. You have your people, you have your processes, you have your product, and you have your tech, and it's not necessarily in that order, and it changes every day. And that kind of stuck with me till today. So every day could be different. Every day, my focus point could be people or process or product or tech or all of them together or none of it, right? So it's, and I think what made him great is also very untraditionally to the time, we're talking about 18 years ago, he always shared, I don't write code. Because there is a negative return investment on me writing code. I will just delay you all because I'm doing all those other things that in the end, if I need you to go to production and I wrote something that is not necessarily working well, I need to fix it, but I have only free time 12 hours from now. And he was humble enough to also admit that there is a, a negative return on investment, which for me took a long time to see another manager now i know we are there like it kind of more in the zeitgeist now where managers are more and more admitting it but back then 
And then a good 10 years after seeing other managers, I haven't seen that sense. So I thought always that, that that humility, that understanding that is a different role and having that focus point that continuously change is that baseline that he built on. And I think also him being an honestly like a, a fun person to be around made the entire package for me to be a great manager. And he's still the person I still aspire to be like till today. Cool. I also saw that you wrote about fun as like a pillar in management or a tool in the toolkit of management. I don't want to take away too much. I have a few more questions about the blog and the blog post, but um, I hand it over to Anthony. You also had a few questions. Yeah. And, and we should definitely talk about the blog. I think Raz and I were just talking backstage about, and I was telling Raz that still the best name for a blog I've ever come across and learned that Raz got inspiration, not took it, but got inspiration from the office. But I still think, I still think from like a engineering management narrative, somehow I managed is just such a, such an awesome, it captures the ethos of it, I think, which is really cool. And I also want to reference another thing you said backstage for us, which was the last episode you recorded on your podcast was called Reasons Not to Become a Manager. <laughs> So I also know you, you kind of led the first question with, it's a nightmare. So like, let's hear about the other side, like, like, or let's, what are the reasons not to become a manager? Give it to us truthful. So the reason not to be a manager, I mean, one, if you actually enjoy the technical part of your role, then that's gone. Like that's something that immediately go, it goes away so fast. It's kind of shocking when you're going through that as a first engineering manager. I remember myself. I hated being an engineering manager when I first got it, that I actually resigned from my job, took a senior position and swore off engineering management for three years until it was thrown at me randomly and I had to accept it. And then it was more natural because I just hated the fact that I couldn't write code. And at that specific time, I should have actually written more code. It was also what I wanted to do. So that's number one. Number two, if you are a person who actually likes seeing the results of your work, on a daily basis, that's gone. Like immediately gone. There is no return on investment that you'll see on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're lucky, you'll see it in a month. If you're super lucky, you'll see it in a month. You probably will count your chips on a quarterly basis. Oh yeah, this was a good quarter, I think. Was it my work or was it someone else's work? Eh, I don't know. Like it's very hard to kind of also attribute it to yourself in a sense. So that's tough. Another one is, uh, I wrote an article about that. Management is honestly legitimately chaos. And I referred to, I think, like uh, Christopher Nolan in that, uh, that article. But it's basically a black hole that sucks you in and it's very, very hard to get out of it, right? So if you don't have a good system and if you're not grounded enough to find those priorities always and find that system that works for you, you will be sucked into this work overload where you work insane amount of hours, you produce nothing and you feel like you're spinning water, like you're just spinning wheels and nothing happens. And I honestly think that if you actually struggle with structure and struggle with structure with yourself and also hold yourself accountable for that structure, then management is not going to be fun for you because it's just basically going to be a black hole nightmare that sucks you in and you can never do anything. You, there is only one constant, which is it, you continue to be pulled in and nothing comes out. Is that an interstellar reference? It is an interstellar reference. Exactly it is. <laughs> That's my favorite movie of all time. So I appreciate the question. And real quick, just to follow up on this, that was my next question, Raz. I mean, to kind of peel back real quick to you led with like the very first position 
And that very first moment you were thrust into management. Can we zoom in there real quick? We love to do this with technical leaders because we have a lot of audience members that are, are you back then? Tell us, what was that story like? What was that moment like? When was that? And what were, what were the moments where you realized that, wow, I just need to go back and write code? And then maybe about three years later also when you got that other EM position. I think at that point in time, I just had a manager who progressed, right? Like the manager kind of got a new position. I was always like more of a, a leading person in the team. And people said, hey, Roz, you know, why don't you just take the role, right? And I thought to myself at uh, the good age of 27, 28, maybe, yeah, why not? Being a manager is probably cool. Like, I don't know what you do all there with your product process, people. Uh, I'm going to also find time to do, to do the technical part. But the reality was that I immediately lost track of the things I actually enjoy doing, which was to write code at that point, to actually have my constant, oh, I fixed a bug today. I did something amazing today. I can go home. And also, I wasn't fully ready for the understanding of seeing others beside myself. And I was young and I wanted to get better at what I'm doing. And once you have a manager, you have a team, you have, at that point, I had five people in the team. I had to start looking at how can I improve them? But how can you look at others if you basically still are trying to figure out who you are and how can you improve yourself? And I think after a good, I don't know, nine months in the role, I realized that I hated the role. I hated actually the job that I took on myself. I also didn't find time to to learn, to grow. I didn't find time to actually be a good manager to the people that I was managing. And at that point in time, I just decided to leave and continue to be a developer. And, you know, how did I do what happened with my second position, how it happened? Honestly, it's where I met Charles at a company called Okshanata when I moved to Berlin, where Okshanata hired me as a developer and I moved to Okshanata and the manager that hired me um, very quickly was let go. And I had to basically build a team relatively from scratch. It was me, another product manager, me as a developer, right? And another product manager. And we had to build something for our logistics crew. And the one thing that we did was to move to the warehouse. We actually vibed a lot on the idea of being product-driven and see the problems and not just like give a new skin or a new stability to a system that we're replacing. And it was a huge success story. And then we did the same with our production people. So, And then that team kind of started forming because the product was good. We added more people. And at that point, they said, hey, Raz, why don't you take the position? And I said, no, thank you. But I will hold that position as an interim until you find someone. And then that interim kind of became more permanent because I realized I actually love it. I loved actually managing a team, which became two, which became three at some point and kind of grew through this weird, I, I didn't want it. And by, I think, not wanting it at that point, it was also this maturity point where I was like thrown into it. I said, okay, I'll hold it for a while and then realize that I can take my hands off now. I can look at others. I can, I don't chase something for myself anymore. It's actually look at what others are doing and how can I improve it. And also cared about the product. I think also for me being young, if I reflect a lot, I was very much self-centered on my own growth that I didn't care about the product I was working on. I just wanted to solve challenging problems so I can add to my toolbox. But I think at that point, I was open to actually look at the product, the process, the people. As my first manager said, the tech was also there, but that was the thing that kind of all the things unlocked in my brain, at least. 
You mentioned in the previous answer you gave that in the end, you really need to have a really good kind of set of structures. And that's one of the tools that kind of kept you saying is for this managerial journey and the management career. Could you tell us a little bit more about your go-to structural pillars that you've kind of discovered or built up for yourself that really worked for you over the years? Sure. I mean, one you need to find your outcomes razor, like the minimum amount of channels you're in to the maximum return you're getting. Because if you're in every channel, then you will not see anything. So the best advice that can give people is look at your Slack and look at all the red dots you have there. Are you reading those channels? And if not, leave them and let people know that if they have something, they can add you, you can join, and then at some point leave. So I, I'm like a huge fan of Inbox Zero, and I also apply that to Slack. I have Slack Zero. I, every message I get on Slack, I read. And the reason I can do that is because I'm in the minimum amount of channels I should be in. So I need to find it all the time, and I also do like a pruning session. Every X amount of weeks, I'm like, okay, I'm leaving all those channels. And every time I get some random question from a person, are you quitting or something? Like, I just saw you leaving like 25 channels. And I'm like, no, just leaving all the channels are not relevant for me. So always uh, have to clear it. Also, I do inbox zero. I realize that for managers, a lot of our tasks are coming from our inbox. Basically, people are sending me emails with questions or something. So I try to finish. I can't finish every day, but I have my system to do it by end of every week. So every Friday, when I go to my weekend, my inbox is clear. And I have a system of actually looking into that, whether it is I get some task and I look at it and I'm like, okay, this is going to be more than an hour work. I'm going to block it on my calendar and archive it until my focus time with the subject of the email pops up. I need to work on it. If it's something I just need to read, I can archive immediately. If it's something I can delegate, I will just forward and snooze. So I can also check that the person who got it can follow up and let me know that it's done. And if it's something I can just quickly do, then I use my hour in the morning of focus time to just finish all my small tasks that I can just do in that one hour without blocking time. Because I have that kind of one hour for that. And this already helps me quite a lot to have some structure of, one, knowing what's going on every day. Like, because I go through Slack all the time. Slack is, never has a dot on it for, for more than a day. And on a weekly basis to see that I actually make sure to follow up on everything that is needed. Other than that, as I read my Google Calendar structure, I have color coding and statistics on what I do. So I actually do take a look into that. And I look at also my next week. I always look at what meetings I have, if I need to prepare for them, and try to, for myself, summarize my weekly focus points, like what I need to achieve, and also retrospect what happened last week, highlights, lowlights, and if I carry over something. So this whole process sounds a lot of work, and I agree, it is a lot of work. But in the end, it buys me insane amount of flexibility outside of that process. So I invest an hour and a half or two a week to structure my work. So then when that work happens, I don't feel like I'm sucked into this nightmare. I'm actually just in control always. I'm, it's not that I'm a control freak. I actually, I'm quite a chaotic person. And I think that having that structure lets me have chaos is who I am because that structure is what buys me that chaos that I usually find myself into, which I enjoy. That's basically it, I guess. It's like controlled chaos in a way. Um, it's really cool. Thank you. I do have one more follow-up maybe like just to, because I, I remember a few of our users actually asking similar questions. Like how do you know what is your focus for the week? Because obviously the context of course drives priorities on like a quarterly basis. Sometimes there's monthly goals, but it's still not so easy to actually distill 
what is the like weekly mission for most people. I was kind of surprised how I struggle with it sometimes. And I noticed that many, many people in senior positions as well are actually struggling. And say, of course, when you're new to the managerial uh, role, even more so. So what is your go-to kind of prioritization approach when you're determining the weekly mission? So it's a couple of things. One, let's first say that everything that I proactively put as my focus point isn't necessarily my focus point for the week because I need to react to other things. And that's super important to understand that our role is to not set a mission and say, oh, it's a scrum process. Everything is closed. Don't talk to me now. So it's very fluid. But with that fluidity, if there's nothing coming in and you don't need to react to anything, it's good to have a plan. And for example, for me, the year is, you can actually break down an engineering year quite easily to very different cycles that you will go through. What do I mean? I mean, every quarter itself has the same rhythm and the same pacing. And every company is it's different. But once you're in the company, you know already technically what's going to happen. What do I mean? The year starts January. Usually at that point, a roadmap begins, right? So you probably want to follow up on your focus OKR in the first two, three weeks just to see that you're trending well. And if not, that probably is going to be your focus point at some point. When you get to the mid-quarter, you also want to take a look at what's going on in generally. Are you progressing with your objectives? What is the roadmap situation? Are we, if I have a focus, for example, stuff that teams are doing that I want to make sure that is happening, that is important for the business, I can also take a look and get all the information I need. At some point at the end of a quarter, you still have your planning for the next one, which is usually a huge part. Whereas managers, that's where our work is really measured, right? The plan for the next quarter. So that's something that I put and comes also with the lovely time. That And it always will be combined. So I'm sorry, managers, I've never met an organization that doesn't do that. Performance reviews will happen at the same time. And at that point, you'll need to also find time to block time to assess. And assessment doesn't happen at that time. Just to also clarify for a manager, you do your one-on-ones. If you do it well, you do it well, you write your performance review in small chunks through the years so you don't have recency bias. But when you get to actually summarize it properly, to give examples properly, that takes a lot of time to go through your notes and to give it and to write it. So again, those things are quite, I don't know, for me are very mechanical. I look at my week, I look at where we are in our cycle of the quarter, of the semester, the six-month semester, for example, and so on. And I see what milestones we have to deliver, September budget planning and so on. So all those things are there and set. And then, of course, there's an email coming on a Wednesday about an incident or something, and then the entire thing changes and you shift around and so on. But it's really nice to have a plan, but it's also good to not to commit to it fully. So that's basically how I try to do it. But it's very much a perspective of a director. As an engineering manager, I guess it's a bit different because your goals are not objectives necessarily, but rather tasks. But still, as an engineering manager, you have those stories that are more important than other potentially because of the business criticality or because it's a huge security incident or something or something. something. It's really good to be in those details and find what is the, again, outcomes razor, what is the minimum amount of detail or things I need to follow to maximize their returns. It's super important in our role to exactly find that fine line and kind of write it out because too much and you become a micromanager. Too little, you become like this like uh, eagle nest manager that has no clue what's going on and you're just like floating around. And the problem is also is in our management role is it's like a fast moving train. And the minute you're not in the right amount of details, then it's very hard to find those details again because you have so many things. So if you are too close to the ground, then take some steps to find what is the right level. If you're too far away, it's almost impossible to go back. 
because then you're losing teams, you're losing what's going on in your team in general. And then how do you find focus at that point? So it's a hard task, but um, it's an exercise worth having, I would say. But sorry if I just overcomplicate it for people. No, no, I think it is not an easy question, but I think that the differentiation between kind of, I would say, zoom in level, I guess, was really interesting with when you're an IC, you're mostly like overlooking your plate and you're trying to manage that plate as quickly as possible. With EM, you kind of have like multiple IC plates, but at the same time, it's still task level versus then going up above, it kind of starts to be more focus areas driven or objective driven. So that was really clarifying. I think it makes a lot of sense. Thank you. It's super inspiring, Raz. I think um, when you were walking through sort of how you approach your calendar, by the way, I thought you had some sort of crazy integration when you started with like, I just checked my calendar and all my colors. I was like, I almost asked earlier in the conversation, what tool is that? But it looks like it's just Google Calendar. Yep. To myself and others that don't know that exists, like, let's get on that because that seems helpful. But as you were just running through the way you approach email too, and whether you're inbox zero or not, like it's... It's cool uh, how you approach it. I want to get personal in a second, but I have one more question about the hierarchy, if you will. So we serve middle managers, broadly speaking, a lot. I'd love to get your quick take on you are, I guess, the definition of a manager of managers, right? And Dario was just walking through it, sort of like you have the IC, then you have the manager of ICs, and then you have the manager of managers, which is, I guess, how you would define your role. What is the primary difference if we kind of step up a level? You showed us your IC to manager transition. When you went manager to manager, outside of just the general cadence and cycle that you just referenced, working on sort of the quarterly cadence, what other differences and or what other differences have you seen when you became a manager of managers? And how do you help those managers? What do you recommend to them? How do you help them level up? So... I'll reference again something. Uh, it's going to be like a pop uh, culture reference uh, podcast now. <laughs> I always gravitated to Captain Picard in TNG. So uh, sorry for those who are not aware. So the next generation Star Trek. And every time there was a problem, Picard used to call all his leadership team to the ready room. And what he did was he basically said, this is the problem we have. Engineering, how would you solve this? Security, what do you think? He basically created a conversation because... Picard, in the best way possible, was a bureaucrat. He was not an inspirational leader. He wasn't like everyone, like, let's forget about the movies because they're all terrible, but at least in the TV show. Picard was a bureaucrat. He was there to actually have bureaucracy and spread bureaucracy through the universe. And also, he was that in his team. He wanted to understand and he wanted to create conversation. I think managing managers is understanding that your managers have opinions and experience that you don't have. And what you need to do is not come to them with solutions. You need to come to them with problem spaces. It's very different from ICs because in IC, like when you're managing ICs, do that as well, absolutely. But your IC experience will vary quite a lot. You will have a good percent of, like let's say 20% juniors, like a good 40% will be, will be mid-levels and then you'll have your seniors. So you will need to also, to some degree, come with solutions to some of them, to some degree, come with some problem with helpful solutions and in some degree not. But with managers of manager, you start actually having a more relationship of, we are a team. This is a problem that was thrown at us. What do you think? How would you solve it from your perspective, from your background, from your history, and then kind of have a conversation and facilitate that and maybe add more context as you go or try to find a good enough solution in the middle, right? Like create some conversation starting, even, even some tension. If it's a positive tension, it's a good one to actually kind of refine a good solution to, to take out of it. I think that's the main part. And then like for growing managers, again, if you come with only with solutions to your 
managers, the managers are managing your teams, then they will never actually be able to make those decisions that you want them to. Because at the end, my role is about trying to find what is our goal for six months, a year, year and a half, right? For them is to run the org six months to the future, right? And then the ICs are doing the day-to-day. If they need you to tell them how to solve problems, you will never be able to actually kind of take that step back, to only focus on some small things and so on. So it's also a really good exercise in trust and, I don't know, humility in a sense, because every time I talk to my team, I know that I don't have all the answers. I just know I have my skewed 18-year perspective of answers. They have their own. And then all of us together come with different solutions and we find actually usually new ideas that we couldn't have thought about ourselves. And that's somewhat different than managing ICs, mostly because most of those managers are experienced, sometimes more experienced than me. So who am I to come to, to them with solution? I hope that answered and not wasn't overbearing here about Star Trek. No, no, that's great. And you should definitely do a pop culture management show or blog or book or something just like all i think it'd be super successful if i'm honest i'd read it (laughs) but i think you're that will stick with me for a while right the breadth of management work at the engineering management level to the ic level is almost in a way broader than if you're managing managers because you get to manage them on management right and in a weird way management's more chaos but there is a defined set of human problems that you're working with so i think that's super interesting. What tools have you found, just like quickly, what tools have you found to be helpful to you, but also to your managers? What have you recommended? What have you utilized? So I already mentioned that we're using OKRs. I honestly believe that by having objectives and letting basically people control how they get the key results and you just set objectives, it's a really freeing system if you do that well. And, and two, it gives also a nice abstraction between us. So I can technically not necessarily be in the details of all initiatives, but I can see how the metric is changing. And then if I see a metric not going in the right direction, you can lead with numbers. You can actually go and ask, I don't know, I can go to randomly name drop a person in my team. I can go to David and say, David, what's going on with our subscription situation? Why aren't we rolling out as expected, right? And then I can just refine also what I talk about. And I can, because I can't follow on everything that's going on in a 120 people organization, but I can follow on, a list of objectives and seeing a trend. Are we going in the right direction or not to decide what I want to talk to? And I, I like also the idea of having KPIs. And I'll quickly explain why KPIs work with OKRs together because I know some people think it's either or. So objectives is very, I mean, I guess everyone knows it, but just quickly, um, objectives are what we want to do, right? Like what do we want to achieve? KPIs for me is, can we really continue in the pathway we have. So a good analogy would be you are driving a car. Your goal is to drive from Berlin to Prague. And that's your objective. Your KPI would be your guess. Basically, how much guess do I have? Now you can technically control your KPI and say, oh, my goal is to continue to drive to Prague. And at some point you will be, oh, no, I'm running really low on guess. So I probably should stop and actually refill my refuel my guess, right? Like refuel. And I like the idea of actually doing that with engineering because with engineering, your goal is to achieve a business metric. But your KPIs are stability, reliability, your load testing, your bugs, like your productivity. And those things are always there. You always need to track them, right? Like you always need to make sure that you're secure. You always need to make sure that you're reliable, that you're robust, that you don't have enough, like you don't have a crazy amount of incidents. So you can focus on your objectives because the minute you have all those things happening on the other side, 
then it doesn't matter if you achieve your business goal, if your service is going down every two days and you lose money by that. So having a combination of following every month KPIs of our costs, our reliability, our incident situation and so on, that I can ask questions and then I can get answers of what we're doing to mitigate that or to just say, look and say, oh, this team is good. I can just look at OKRs. And on the other side, then I can look at the OKRs and then take a look and say, hey, why are we progressing in this way in not as we expected? What's going on? Should we escalate it? Should I jump in? Should I take a look more deeper? Even if it's not something I was supposed to look at because the numbers are telling me that I should. So abstracting it and having like an artifact in between us makes this quite easy for all of us to actually have a nice refined and well-defined roles and not step over a line and also not take too much information or not enough information. I kind of like that interface. As a former engineering person, I like having interfaces. Makes sense. I'm not sure whether you're aware, but we have this community uh, next to the product and to the podcast in Slack of kind of new emerging and established leaders that help each other out. And I sometimes post kind of ahead of time that we have podcasts and introduce the guests and stuff. And we actually had a question for you coming through just like literally a few minutes ago. So I wanted to throw that one in. No worries. It's not, it's not too crazy. It's actually also not super surprising. It's a very relevant question. One of our community members is asking, I'm always curious on leaders' thoughts on remote workforce and their experiences around managing and leading teams effectively. I assume it also goes into the direction of like, what do we think about like fully remote? Many companies are going back to the office. What's your personal take on this? And then maybe also, how did you kind of go for this last period, the last two, three years adopting? Yeah, that's a really good question. The Twitter folks can now start uh, kind of have like their pitchforks and, and uh, torches ready for this. I think, honestly, that remote work is kind of great, but I struggle with remote work fully. Maybe it's just me being more older and expecting something from the office, but I still find that information flows much more organically in the office. I remember the days of like looking to my side and saying, hey, Daniel, can you take a look at this and be done? Where the productivity side of me doing this today would be to arrange a meeting with Daniel that will happen in four days. And basically it will be a 30 minute meeting where even though it's a five minute thing, we'll use up the 30 minutes because we're not trained for this as well. So I'm all in for remote. I'm currently at home. Like I'm not going to like uh, lie, but I think a day every two weeks in an office is not a bad thing. And I'm sorry if it hurts some people and I know it's tough, but I think that human connection is missing. I go to the office twice or three times a week. I just enjoy it. I know that people don't, but I would love to see more people once in a while. I always take pride of 95% of the people in my org, I was in their interview process. I also would love to once in a while have coffee with them and actually get to know them more than just like seeing this digital bubble of us and have a more human conversation. I mean, those Zoom calls are nice and all, but it, there is a barrier there for me, can't speak for others, that it takes away the, the personality side of it out of it. And, and how did you work around this when you were uh, fully remote with... Delivery Hero for the past, I mean, throughout the, the pandemic, I'm sure. And probably you're still like, I assume you're still mostly remote. And then there is probably some office days and things like that. How do you kind of bridge that gap? Um, I think it's especially interesting. And thank you for being open because you do like kind of admit and say like, look, this is not like the easiest thing to do. And it's not the easiest thing to bridge that 
kind of in collaborative intimacy gap that develops when you're just digital? What tools have worked for you? So we did a lot of um, social gatherings remote. So we tried a lot of uh, pub quizzes remote that were really fun. And we claim that we will continue to do it. We kind of stopped, but I actually now will remind myself that to arrange another one. So those remote pub quizzes were really fun and uh, also kind of like a bottom-up approach that started with the team. We tried remote coffees. It's very awkward, though, to actually eat and have coffee in front of your computer. I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't translate. We tried a lot of those things. In reality, it was okay. I mean, uh, in my opinion, does it replace a team event when we go to a park? No, but it was what we could do for the necessity of the time. But I also would love to say that COVID was not a remote, like it should not be a representation of what is a remote work. I worked at Wikimedia, which is a hybrid remote organization before. At Wikimedia, the one thing that they did very well was, yes, it's remote, but every quarter we were somewhere, we were meeting each other. And I think the one thing I would ask people that are really pro-remote is to just open themselves up to the idea of meeting once a quarter, month, whatever, because we shouldn't let that COVID definition of remote be the definition of remote, because there is also a lot of people who want to go to the office. And I think of people in Berlin, for example, who just relocated to the city. Office is where usually you find your social circle, right? Like it comes quite problematic when you relocate to a new place and you find yourself now feeling alone. So I would say, I don't know, it's a hard topic to talk about because people are very emotional about their opinion and very much will defend their opinion. And there's like, there's a, it's a very binary opinion. It's either all in or nothing. And my opinion is somewhere like, eh, it's somewhere, it's very gray. So yeah, remote is okay. Fooling in the office sucks. I don't, I don't want to be 100% in the office as well. But coming to the office once in a while is not bad. And COVID remote is not remote. Remote existed before for a very long time and people are really good at it. But they also met in person once in a while. And I would still love to keep that remote and not go to COVID remote. I'm with you, Raz. I'm with you, I think. I remember a lot of people saying in the pandemic, this is not remote. This is forced remote. Like we're like forced. <laughs> this is it's not remote. Remote is defined by flexibility. It's defined by, in a way, like, you know, the organic nature of the work, right? Choice of location, almost. Totally. So I'm with you, I think. But this is a perfect transition to my next question. I mean, how did remote affect your personal life? Because I think for me, that is the biggest benefit that people have cited or referenced from remote work. It's given me time for my kids. It's given me time for my family. And honestly, those are really hard to refute, right? Like it has broken the idolatry of, I just must be in the office nine to five or worse, and then have a two, three hour commute on whatever highway you need to be on, at least in the States, but like the trains, the busy, warm trains in Berlin, but like, how has it affected your personal life? And then we'll dig into the personal side afterwards a little bit more. So it's been great. And again, that's the part where I'm saying remote is great if done well. Yeah, I love the fact that I can be two, three days also from home a week. I love the fact that I don't need to commute on rainy, disgusting Berlin days, uh, <laughs> which is like 90%. No, I'm kidding. Berlin is actually great. But um, it gives me a lot of flexibility. It gives me a lot of flexibility with my kids. It also gives me, gives me a lot of flexibility with my health. So Funnily enough, as a person who's been doing Ironman triathlons and so on, I, I, during COVID, like many others, I gained a lot of weight and I stopped taking care of myself. And realizing that when I actually started to commit to this remote part, I was like, oh, I have 
much more time now to actually take care of myself and train. I just can do it at home. And I bought some set of dumbbells. I have an indoor trainer. And then I started just training at home, realizing that who needs a gym now even? So this remote became also part of my mindset, not just for remote, for everything. I don't go to a gym anymore. I can just train at home. I don't need to run in a treadmill. I can just run outside and come back home. So this is like also being kind of, let's, let's uh, say, forced to stay home. Made me realize I can also utilize my time much better. So on that case, yeah, remote is amazing. I never, never, will never find myself, I hope, unless the industry will go crazy, working again nine to five in an office every day. Um, so absolutely. You cannot refute the fact that remote has made our lives much, much, much better. Also costs, time. The only big thing that I would say is separation of life. And I see it less with family people because I think for us, there is a clear, there is an end to a day. I mean, my kids, they're at 6 p.m., they will open this door and my, my <laughs> two kids will just jump at me. I saw it with people who moved to Berlin or single that they could not stop working. I had to many times say, hey, you know, it's, I see you sending messages at 10 p.m. Shut down. And people are like, I don't have anything else to do. I am watching Netflix and writing code because what am I supposed to do? So that's, again, the part where we need to support people when they don't have that system that takes them off work because then work becomes an all-consuming thing because work is life, life is work, work home is work. The boundaries are so fuzzy. And that's one thing that we also need to kind of take into account that the perspective that I have is not necessarily the perspective a 22-year-old has when they're living alone in a city that they don't know. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, you know, ideally, a lot of that flexibility that's been injected and agility and variety makes us better leaders in both in-person and remote. And I, I think that's, I've seen it personally. I've also seen it in others. But real quick, I mean, you referenced you do run Ironmans. You're a triathlete. You're a podcast host. You're a blogger. That awesome name. We've talked about that. A father. And there's a lot going on in your life. And you've been at this for a long time. I'm extremely curious how you, I mean, somehow you manage, but <laughs> plug again for the name. How do you manage to stay productive, grow, thrive, both on the personal side and professional side? Like, I'm always curious why you did a management podcast, but yeah, how do you manage it all? I don't. So uh, I haven't done Ironman since my kids were born. I did it before, and I don't think I will do it in the coming years. But I still do triathlons. I'm going to do a the Berlin triathlon and... A month. Very cool. So probably get ready. No, I'm kidding. I'm not good. But uh, I'm still running and I still find time because I don't know, like, <laughs> it's this is going to be a bit philosophical. So the one big thing that I took from back in the day when I was a swimmer, my swim coach told me something that resonated with me till today. Like I was 12, I think. I'm a good 38 now. So it's been a couple of years. And I had anxiety of racing. I still have anxiety of many things. And I remember him when I gave my regular excuses of why I don't want to race or can't race. I, uh, I'm sick, I'm, I'm, my belly hurts, uh, my, whatever, my, my joints aren't well. He said, Raz, you know, quitting is a habit and it's not, it's not usually a decision. It becomes a habit. So the minute it becomes a habit, then, you know, you don't race today and you won't race tomorrow because it, the habit is really easy. It's just, you get so, just like immediate gratification for it. And then maybe university will become tough. So, you know, there'll be an exam, so you can quit. That's in your toolbox. And then some relationships in your life will be tough. And then quitting will be another thing in your toolbox. But in the end, you live a life where you really haven't achieved maybe what you should have. And what for sure will happen is you reflect in your life and you said, 
you will not have a happy life because you've never challenged yourself to feel happy. And I live with that. Uh, it stays with me every day. So I actually, every time I feel like there is a challenge, even though I'm terrified, I jump onto it because at the end of the day, I mean, life is temporary. Nothing matters. Like, as I said, it's going to be philosophical, right? Like, but if nothing matters, the only thing that matters is to try our best and to try to have fun. And failing is part of the fun. If you learn to kind of put yourself in that pressure and you actually get to enjoy 60% of that success that you wouldn't have, then you only fail 40%. It's much better than not trying 100% of the time. So in that case, I think, how do I do it all? I don't know. I started writing some things and it became a blog. I had a conversation with my wife about she works in product, I work in tech. She said, let's record an episode, see what happens. I started jogging at some point when I realized that I'm not going to be a professional swimmer and then started riding a bike and started doing triathlons and it just escalated. It, it has this like continuous escalation. The thing I started learning in my years now is to actually not commit to everything and pick and choose, which took me a long time. So I took this to an extreme. So I said, I'm not planning to do an Ironman triathlon in the next coming years. I haven't done one since my first son was born. And that's also a decision, and it, I don't consider this quitting. I consider it as, as priorities, and I can't have that priority. But I'm super happy I did all those things, and I'm super happy I still find time for myself to run. It cleans my head. Like It, it is one thing that keeps me sane is running or cycling, even if at home. It's, uh, that self-care part is real, and it doesn't need to be running or anything. Any hobby that we can have for ourselves, whatever it is, is fun. And that's part of it. And again, with the blog, I stopped. I don't post a lot. I mostly now do social media sometimes, but I basically have random thoughts that are coming in and then I disappear for a couple of months. And the podcast, we also deprioritize, but I still try to find some time to do other things. And I still am happy I have those things in my, uh, I wouldn't say toolbox, but my personal history that I can go to and listen and, or, or reminisce on. And even now, uh, deciding to do a triathlon after a, a quite a long hiatus and uh, being fit again for that is kind of fun. Like that journey now to, to do a triathlon in a month from now has been a really fun journey that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't challenged myself through the years. And even now with everything, with my two kids and so on, and my youngest son has special needs, still deciding to, you know what, I can carve out the time and do it, even though I have like super demanding work and super demanding life and so on to actually try it again at this age and see if I can do it. And I am a month away. I'm in, in the right shape. I can actually do it today if I would want to. And if it was here. So that's the fun part of those things is like challenging yourself to the point where I can feel, oh, this has been fun. And this was, I don't know, something I probably would have avoided unless I would have tried it. As a runner, I definitely hear you. And like, it's, I always admire people when they come back from breaks. I have these breaks all the time. Funny enough, I run more when I'm like feeling worse because it's my, yeah, I can totally relate to my like go-to uh, de-stress yeah. tactic. We had two more questions from the community. You were like super popular. So the blog and the podcast, I think definitely help to like someone who doesn't know you yet, like get a good feel for what can they get out of you in terms of advice and perspective. So there you go for like, uh, it's a worthwhile investment. The one question is about kind of in this current times when like startups are not as high, like just companies in general, not hiring as much and small startups are staying small. So you kind of are trapped in your roles in a way. How can 
um, specifically engineering managers kind of grow in these times? What is your advice to that, if you have any? I don't like the idea of growth being necessarily a numbers game. So I remember interviewing for Delivery Hero, where at Wikimedia I had a team of 50 people and a Delivery Hero, when I joined, it was zero. They said, you can start something, it will potentially be 30 and then we'll see. And they asked me in the interview, why am I taking a, a lesser role? And I said, I don't think it's a lesser role. The amount of people you have is not necessarily defines your growth. And the growth of the company doesn't define your growth. I think in our industry, it's very cyclical. Growth will happen at some point, but also there is the idea of managing what you have with the people you have and the size you have. And that's different skills that we need to have. And I think if we only live in this, where we had seven years, hyper growth, everyone is growing like crazy. People don't know how to actually take a team and actually let them have more productive living, more, how do we actually operate on bare bones and actually look at what we need to do? And I think this is just a different version of growth. And it doesn't feel like growth because you don't look at people, but there is a growth that we take internally from it is how to manage a team that doesn't grow in people, but has business challenges still coming in. How do you manage the fatigue of working on the same product? How do we make a team engage on working on the same product? And I think those things are critical to add to the manager toolbox. So I would say focus on that because I see it myself. And what are your, what have you seen work for yourself there? Like if you reframe that with people, like what frameworks or kind of ways of thinking do you think are helpful in that situation? So for productivity, there is a very clear science to that, I guess, already. Like you can follow like Dora metrics and just check if your engineering team is productive. And if not, you will find all the different KPIs you can hit to make them more productive. And why is productivity important? And again, as a person who went through those cycles before, I don't know, as I said, 18 years, this is the third time we are now in recession in my career. Seeing it as an IC, seeing it now as a, as a starting manager and seeing it now as a more, I don't know, like a bit more senior manager, you learn that when those things happen, to adjust at expectations and also to adjust and still deliver. And I see it where managers who haven't and only went through hyper growth, that they don't have it in their toolbox to find how to refine more, how to do more with less. So I would say, look at Dora metrics. It's great. And it's a great way to actually look at your team and have a different perspective of it and find different ways to be engaging. That is not just new roles, rather new opportunities and not new technical challenges, but just adding fun. I kind of, we discussed it, I don't know if it was in the episode or before. Fun is one of those parts that we forget in management. It's not written in any books, basically. It's kind of amazing. You have all those books talking about how to be a good manager and so on. No one adds the idea of fun. Where we're talking about engineering, they can choose their jobs any day, most days. Fun is part of the thing that keeps people engaged, even when sometimes, not necessarily that the work is fun, but the environment is fun. And creating a fun environment is something that I think more and more of us can just add to our lives and add to our toolbox. So another thing that we should do as engineers, in a sense a bit, if we can, as engineering managers, is to understand that we need to make some things fun. And if we cannot produce that fun organically, then manufactured fun is not bad. Like uh, we need to commit to that some manufactured fun. Makes perfect sense. And manufactured fun, I think, is such a great way to put it because it's kind of like when you study psychology, a lot of things are that seem myths like are debunked because you understand most of the things that happen 
quasi organically are not organic. They're like driven by one or the other person. And then it's kind of similar. I think when you facilitate, when you manage, when you basically help humans along on a journey, like a lot of it is intentional. And just because you don't, for you, it feels organic and you like enjoy the ride doesn't mean that somebody else didn't come up with it and kind of like created it for you. So I totally buy into that. And the last question that came from the community, we spoke about it a little bit in the beginning, but maybe there is a one or two clarifications that you want to add. Uh, one product leader actually asked, what level of involvement do you have with low-level tasks? Like, do you do any hands-on work? And how do you keep it as a balance? I think you mentioned a little bit of that in the beginning. So if you could reference that one more time, it would be helpful. And then how effective is your sprint and time planning? And specifically, dev work estimates tend to be off, as we all know. It always goes differently than we assume. And how do you kind of plan and measure? Which I think is a new aspect. I don't think we talked about that. Wow, okay. I'll start with the first one. I don't do low-level tasks almost anymore. It's not in my wheelhouse, and, and the people in my org are doing it much better than if I would jump into it. So none of it, basically. Not at this point, right? Like I'm managing managers of managers, so it's far removed so far from like low-level tasks, and I have, I'm far removed from actually having good skills to do it. How do I manage sprints? So again, I have engineering product managers that do that, but it kind of, uh, we're opening a can of worms here. I despise the idea of sprints. I think sprints are idiotic and they're just, if I said manufactured fun is good, manufactured structure is idiotic in the industry where you can deploy to production in every minute. And sprints are weird rails we're putting on. As I said, like I plan my week and I know that I proactively plan, but I react Sprints are proactively planned and saying, I don't want to listen. I don't want to look. I have a direction. I hate sprints. They're stupid. It's not agile. It's basically the idea of sprint is saying, I have two weeks. You don't tell me what to do. And I have a direction for two weeks is the opposite of agility. The entire concept of agile and the version of agile we have right now in the industry is nonsense. And what we need to be is adaptive. We need to plan but to be reactive. And whoever is asking me about engineering, giving estimations, I would say, who cares? I mean, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that the engineer team is productive and whatever happens, we need to validate, oh, this is something we didn't plan for. Should we continue to invest on this or should we divest from this? This is the only question we should ask. All the rest is nonsense. And that's my take on it. I think I, from a product perspective, I, first of all, I fully agree with you. Definitely rabbit hole. So I'm not going to say more about this, but uh, my partner is a delivery manager, which is not exactly a product person, but it's kind of between like engineering and products. So we have similar discussions at home and I recognize myself and you right now so much. So I totally agree with you. I think the part that sometimes is the counter argument and where potentially as a product leader, I can relate to the question is that. We, of course, need to, and, and this counts for EMs, I think, the same way as PMs. Normally, we collaborate on, like, what we are ought to do this month, how much can we actually get done. Like, this thought of capacity or what is our team capable of doing, what's realistic to propose as a mission, I think that is still a real-life problem, even if we say, and we've tested shape up, actually, so cycle work rather than sprint work that worked much better for us a different way of a post structure, but it, I think it's more flexible. But independent of which framework you use, I think this question of how can you actually plan work that is in itself unplannable is a really like still good question. 
Absolutely. The thing is, you cannot. The only thing you can do, and I remember like Tokshanata telling the CTO, my CTO always wanted an accurate estimation. I said, the idea of estimation is not accurate. So I forced him to call it guesstimation. The only thing you can do is look at the problem space and guesstimate, but you will always find some rabbit holes. And what you can technically do is start measuring how many stories you do per person in your team on average if you follow the same process of refining it, small stories, and so on. And you basically can get a rough guesstimation. Will you be accurate on a week-to-week basis? You will never be accurate on a week-to-week basis. You will average out with time. So you always feel like you're missing and you're either too fast or not fast enough. That will be normal, but it will average itself out, which somehow is a good plan. Like just using the law of averages here. But the reality is, it's very hard to say like to a person, hey, you need to go from point A to point B and there is no map. How much time do you think it will take you? And a person says, oh, it's two kilometers. I run two kilometers in, I don't know, like eight minutes. I'm very fast. I can do it in eight minutes. But then you realize, oh no, it's uphill and there is no path and there are holes and you need to jump. And oh no, now there is also a bridge that fell, fell down. So what do you do? <laughs> like all of it is insane. You can't map it really. So the only thing you can do is say, Kilometer by kilometer takes about seven minutes. And one time it will be three minutes because you're just going to slide down a hill. Another time it will be, I don't know, 15 hours and you'll average yourself out with time. So that's basically how I would look at it. But I know it's a difficult topic and this doesn't give a solution. It's just maybe gives the perspective of it's an unsolvable, in a sense, problem. And it definitely feels like I think you're looking back on 18 years of experience, uh, which is really, really helpful because in the end, these type of questions, I don't think are resolvable in like a theoretical sense. I think it kind of depends on the context, the team, the company you work at. We are so grateful for like the time you've given us because we're uh, literally over time at this point. I do have one last question, which we always ask. And actually it's Anthony's question. So I'll let Anthony ask it, but we can't wrap up any episode without it. So uh, yeah, there you go, Anthony. I already prepped for us. So Raz, you knew this was coming. It's a very simple question and I would call it, uh, I definitely like asking it, but it's, it's, it's just the audience's question, I hope in that regard. So if you can go back to where a lot of our listeners are, I guess, you know, that icy sort of, that icy stage and give yourself just the top one or two bits of advice or one or two tips, you know, what would you give yourself after all these years? I would ask myself, why am I, if I'm, for example, in this position where I'm, I see being asked to be a manager as I, as I was, I'd ask myself, do I see the P, 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 and not just the T? So do I see the people, the process, the product, or is it still the tech that, that drives me? Because if it's still the tech that drives me, I think you should stay in IC. But that's very specific to me. What I will also go back to say to younger me who before I was offered the position, I would give myself another advice as a person who left quite a lot of jobs after a year and a half or two and kind of went through the cycle. I'll give myself another advice, which would be everything is cyclical in this industry and moving to a new green pasture will have its honeymoon phase and then you'll have again the downside. You'll start seeing the world as it is. Sticking out a bit longer will be quite great for your skill set to actually walk through and kind of climb up from this honeymoon phase to low to then finding that equilibrium because unless you do that it's again going back to that thing with quitting right unless you do that you will find yourself in the cycle where 
you have your honeymoon phase and then, oh, it's not what I hoped it would be. You go find your dream job, but your dream job doesn't exist. You can actually create your dream job by going through those cycles and pushing. And if you can't, then quit. And I don't think you should stay at an engineering job for 10 years plus, but staying a year and a half, two, will never lead you off to a place where you can kind of muster through some stuff and push and actually have your voice heard or get some credibility in your team, which will also put you in a different problem space, which is this longevity part and seeing something through to the end, which is something that took me a good seven years-ish of my career in the beginning to just jump from like four jobs in seven years to then realize that I don't know how to stay. I don't have longevity. I don't understand how to have longevity in a job. And that's something that I would also tell myself. Amazing advice. And I just want to underline that last one too, Raz. It's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, on a personal level, on that second part. And even in an early, early stage startup where one year can feel like a kajillion, just not because of anything, just the sheer amount of different things you touch, it can honestly feel a lot longer. I feel like that two-year mark is, um, and we tell a lot of our team members that that two-year mark, if you decide to sort of go beyond that, you've entered that territory of commitment that requires that almost like overcoming of the the second year. The third year is where you really apply it all. But I just want to underline that notion from Roz because that, um, at least in my experience, makes a lot of sense as well. It's an awesome share. Super, super cool. Thank you so much, Roz, for all the wisdom, the insights, the learnings, and the humility and openness that you've allowed us to experience today. And I hope everyone enjoyed and learnings, thank you so much to our community for providing real-time questions. Definitely super cool to have that. And I hope you enjoyed it as well a little. I, I had a lot of fun. I'm so happy I don't need to edit this, but uh, <laughs> I had a lot of fun. So thanks a lot for having me. <laughs> Manufactured fun. <at> its best. <laughs> Manufactured fun. <laughs> thank you, Ross. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio, or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.